0: Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. We are um, looking once again at this topical series uh, entitled Still Running to Win. Paul has given us this exhortation in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 24. He tells us to run in such a way that you may win. And that is our daily reminder that every single one of us who name the name of Christ are, as believers, to... uh, to run the race of our Christian lives with such seriousness, such exertion that there can be no doubt whatsoever that we are going to lay claim to that eternal prize. Just as an athlete in Paul's day was deadly serious, exerting themselves in pursuit of a temporary reward and temporary glory in the games, uh, we as believers must be that much more deadly serious that much more committed and exerting ourselves in pursuit of the eternal reward and the eternal glory that has been purchased for us by Christ at such an infinite cost. And this morning, uh, as we come to this final, what will be the final installment of our of our series, I want to turn our attention to the, the third essential purpose of the church, and that is sowing gospel seed. Sowing gospel seed. We have been using and have over the years used Paul's exhortation in 1 Corinthians 9 uh, to run to win, we've used that as kind of a north star in order to organize our philosophy of ministry. Uh, We have attempted, as we've gone through this series, to define from Scripture who we are to be individually as believers, but also uh, to define from Scripture what the local church is to be collectively. Uh, we, We need to understand that. If the Scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for, for correction, for training in righteousness, and if, if, as Peter says, his divine power has granted to us as believers everything pertaining to life and godliness, and if, as Peter also says, we have the prophetic word made more sure, then we as a church— will do well, as Peter says, to pay attention to it as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in our hearts. In other words, we are to pay attention to the Word of God and what it teaches until Christ returns. This This is our commitment. And so we have, in this series, attempted to boil down everything that the Scripture says that the church is to be doing and everything that the church is to be prioritizing And to get that down to its essential elements, the key things. And when you do that, you're left with three commitments or three focuses of the church. Holding God high through his word, building up the body in love, and as we're going to see this morning, sowing gospel seed. Everything the church is to be, everything the church is to do should fall under one of those three headings. Otherwise, it shouldn't be something we're doing, and it shouldn't be something uh, that we're being. Two weeks ago, we unpacked what it means to hold God high through his word. We said the goal of human history and specifically the salvation of sinners is the praise and the worship of God. So our, our, we were created to hold God high. And therefore, one of the primary purposes for Christ's church is obviously to hold God high. Just as everything is to glorify him, so must his church. And that means that God has given us what we need to know about him, to worship him in spirit and in truth, and he's done that through divine revelation, and he's given that to us uh, on the pages of Holy Scripture. And so so for us to be able to hold God high, we go to the Word of God to find out who he is, as we learned this morning in Equipping Hour, uh, some, some dimension of who he is. We can know God truly, and we can know God uh, 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 accurately, but we cannot know God exhaustively. But he can be known, and he is known to us both in creation, but also, and more specifically, in his person, uh, in his word. So we've we, 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 we intentionally connected through his word to holding God high, because there's lots of uh, Christians out there who are trying to, quote-unquote, hold God high, but it's not in accordance with his word, and therefore they are not able to do so in a way that glorifies him. Secondly, last Sunday, we considered the second essential purpose of the church, which is uh, to build up the body in love. We said the metaphor that stands out most prominently as you look at the New Testament is this metaphor of the church as a body, as Christ's body. Uh, The church, metaphorically speaking, is Christ's body, Christ being the head of the body. And this metaphor, uh, like all word pictures in, in Scripture, is meant to describe the church uh, in, a, in a unique way, it's, it it highlights several important truths about the church. One of those truths that's so uh, uh, essential is uh, the unity of the church. The church is one body. Uh, Ephesians four says there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, uh, one God and Savior who is over all and in all and through all. We are one church. First Corinthians uh, chapter twelve and verse twelve, uh, Paul makes clear there that um, for even as the body is one and yet has many members and all the members of the body, all, and all members of the body, though they are many, are one body. He says, so also is Christ. So unity is essential. Just as a body is, um, is not a body when it's not together, so the body of Christ is not a body when it is one body. Now, when we say unity, we don't mean necessarily uniformity which is unfortunately how a lot of people define unity in the church. We are all exactly the same. We dress the same way. We come from the same ethnic background. We we all are of the same maturity. We all have the same spiritual interests and practical interests. No, that's not the picture of the church. The church is a whole mix of different people. It is, it is a mix of ethnicities. It is a mix of of maturity. It's a mix of giftedness. It's a mix of... Um, uh, of uh, uh, you know, uh, religious background and understanding, uh, the, they're, we're all different heights, right? We're, like, the, not, the, there, should, there is unity when we speak, when the, when the church speaks of unity, it does not speak of uniformity. Unfortunately, a lot of churches do tend to self-sort and to become more uniform than, un, than united. Secondly, alongside that concept of unity in the body metaphor is this idea of diversity, diversity. Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 14 says, for the body is not one member, but many, but many. And later on in verse 20, he says, but there are many members, but one body. So just highlighting this unity in diversity aspect of the church. A third element that comes with this building up the body metaphor, this body metaphor is interdependence interdependence. Not only is each member related to Christ as the head, but in the body of Christ, we are vitally related to one another. Can't forget that. Um, And in Romans 12 and verse 5, where again, Paul speaks of spiritual giftedness, he, he brings this to the foreground. He says, so we who are many are one body in Christ, but individually members one of another. That, In other words, we are interdependent. And it is our interdependence where the pulse of ministry can be felt. It's our relationship to one another in the church where the practical dimensions of ministry really flesh themselves out, where we... Understand that we are truly running to win, because later on in Romans 12, just a couple of verses further down, Paul says, "Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good." And then in verse 10, he says, "This be devoted to Christ, no, to one another in love, in brotherly love. Give preference to one another, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord." And and on and on he goes. So. It is in this interdependence that our love for one another is is worked out. Our devotion to Christ is worked out in our devotion to one another in his church. Ephesians 4 verse 16 was our text last Sunday, and it revealed to us that each and every member is to serve the other members of the body according to their giftedness and to do so in an atmosphere of love. This is how we serve Christ in his church. And so it reveals to us, we learned last Sunday, that love amongst and for the members of the church is a prerequisite for the growth of the body. Each member must give of themselves to one another in self-sacrificial Christian love in order to see the body grow up into maturity. This morning, we turn to the third essential purpose of the church, which is sowing gospel seed sowing gospel seed. Jesus' great commission, Matthew 28, we know it well, in in verses 19 to 20, says that we are to make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. And even before, this is after the resurrection, but even before then in John chapter 10 and verse 16, Jesus says to his disciples that he has other sheep which are not of this fold, meaning of Israel. I must bring them also, he says, and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. So God's eternal plan of redemption has purposed that both Jew and Gentile in his church would proclaim the testimony that Jesus is God in human flesh. That God came to earth and lived a sinless life, that he offered himself as an atonement for sin, bearing the punishment upon the cross, and having made said atonement, rose from the grave in victorious power, and commands all men everywhere to repent and to trust in him alone. This is the gospel message that we proclaim, this is the gospel message that we confess that Jesus is Lord, that he is the Savior of the body, and that by his grace and through faith in him, you can have your sins washed away past, present, and even future by his his atoning work. It's a powerful message. It is a powerful message. If you think about all, think about all that the world does to try and silence their conscience. Think about that. to to distract themselves from the constant weight of guilt. I mean, there is no no question in my mind that the explosion of, of, of therapy that the world seeks out apart from the word of God is a direct result of what? A conscience that just eats away at them. It's a conscience that eats away at these folks. They will try and do anything to silence their conscience. They will redefine what is right and wrong. They will they will bury their heads in the sand. But the fact of the matter is that the world is constantly trying to silence a conscience that is screaming at them. And God, and yet God and Jesus Christ has given us the key to set us free from sin slavery, the, the weight of guilt and condemnation. He's given it to us in the gospel. Jesus said in John eight verse thirty two that if you believe upon him, if you believe on Christ and continue in his word, he says you are truly disciples of mine and will know the truth, and the truth will make you what? Free. He goes on in verse thirty six to say that if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. This is a real freedom, not a temporal freedom, uh, not not a not a political freedom. But a freedom to serve God and to love him and to know him with a with a clear conscience, we have in the gospel as the church a message of freedom and eternal salvation, and we need to understand it as such. It's brought freedom and salvation to every believer's heart here this morning. If you're in Christ this morning, God has done this work in your heart, and it can bring freedom and eternal salvation. To others' hearts as well. And maybe you're not in Christ this morning. Maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, I don't know if the arm of the Lord is long enough to reach down and to come and and save and transform my heart. Well, Paul says that whoever believes on him will not be disappointed. And I think that's a wonderful encouragement. There is no distinction, Paul says, between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches to all who call upon him. For whoever, this is a a wonderful promise, for whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so the, the exhortation of the church is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to be saved. Now, we know from Scripture that salvation is God's gracious work. This is God's work in the heart. God is the one who predestines, God is the one who calls, God is the one who justifies, and ultimately God is the one who brings us to glory. God is the one who saves and he receives all the glory, he gets all the honor, even when one sinner repents, says the angels rejoice in heaven. So the question remains, what part do we play? Where do we fit into this? What's our responsibility when it comes to fulfilling this command to make disciples? I mean, if salvation is God's work, and we believe that it is, from beginning to end, what are you and I supposed to be doing? And the answer, of course, is given to us by Paul in Romans chapter 10, in verses 14 and following. Paul, using some rhetorical questions, asks this, How then will they call the world on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? and how will they hear without a preacher how will they preach unless they are sent just as it is written how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things however they did not all heed the good news for isaiah says lord who has believed a report but then he ends with this he says so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of christ you see god hasn't not, has not not is not only ordained the ends of who will be saved and how But he has ordained the means to that end. Yes, God is the one who saves the sinner. God calls them. God regenerates them. God justifies them. God keeps them. God glorifies them. But the way he saves them, the way he saves sinners, is through the faithful proclamation of the gospel. This is how it works. And so when it comes to the third essential purpose of the church, our responsibility as the church is not to save people. That's that's actually a weight off of our shoulders. The, The job of the church is not to save people. Saving people is God's work. Our responsibility is to faithfully and consistently disseminate the message of the gospel. In other words, to sow gospel seed. That's what we do. So in summarizing the third essential purpose of the church as sowing gospel seed, I am deliberately borrowing the language of Christ used in the parable of the soils. We're familiar with that. It's in Matthew chapter 13, as a parallel account in Mark uh, chapter 4, where Jesus speaks of the gospel going forth like a sower sowing seed in a field. And if you remember that parable, Jesus uses the word picture to illustrate the manner in which believers go out and share the message of the gospel in the world around them. And so I think it's fitting and I think it's a fitting way, it's also a memorable way for us to sum up this purpose of the church. And so the third the third leg of our philosophy of ministry is that running to win requires sowing gospel seed. Sowing gospel seed. If the church fails at this task, then we are not being faithful to one of our essential purposes as a a body. And it puts the very long-term viability of Christ's church at risk, at least in the local context. If the church isn't making disciples by faithfully sowing the seed of the gospel, we betray the standing orders of the Lord of the church, and the church's impact for Christ is diminished. God has ordained the ends, and God has ordained the means to those ends. And so for the balance of our time, I want us to consider those means. How do we, as believers, sow gospel seed? How do we go about that task? Break it down into three, uh, three essential parts here. First, if we're going to run to win, sowing gospel seed, we need to be committed to pray. If we're going to be Faithful to this task of sowing gospel seed, we need to be committed to prayer. The starting point for all effective gospel proclamation is is prayer. John Piper, in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, says it very poignantly. He says, we cannot know what prayer is for until we know that life is war. Paul equates our Christian walk with that of spiritual warfare. Right? He describes the believer's armor, Ephesians chapter 6. Of course, we're not talking about actual warfare against unbelievers. We're talking about, what we're talking about is contending for the truth of God and the glory of God in a world that stands in opposition to God and seeks to suppress the, the truth of God in unrighteousness. We are engaged in a spiritual battle against real forces, Rulers against powers, Paul says, against world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. It's a real battle. We live in a kind of anti-supernatural culture, so the concept of, of spiritual warfare just doesn't really register with us like maybe it, it would have um, in previous generations. But that is the reality that Paul describes. And until we understand the force of this we will never really pray like we ought to in terms of evangelism. Paul uh, Piper says we cannot know what prayer is for until we know that life is war and then he goes on to say prayer is the communication with headquarters by which the weapons of warfare are deployed according to the will of God. And of course one of the weapons One of the weapons of our warfare, if you look at the believer's armor, in Ephesians chapter 6 is what? The gospel of peace. The gospel of peace. So prayer and sowing gospel seed, they go hand in glove in the New Testament as you look across Paul's writings as well as even the gospels. Think, for example, look at Matthew, uh, just, you don't have to look there, but just think about Matthew chapter 6, right? The Sermon on the Mount. And, and Jesus says, uh, the disciples say, Lord, teach us how to pray. And Jesus says, pray then in this way, what? Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not just a prayer that the future would be brought to reality. It's a prayer that God's the heaven, which is that God, God's kingdom purposes would be accomplished on earth. I mean, what is, what is that besides the uh, end result of evangelism? that his kingdom would be realized on earth. Paul in 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 1 asks the believers there to pray for him and and his co-labors in the gospel as they go out. He says, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did with you. So again, we see that prayer and evangelism go hand in glove. Paul says in Romans 10 verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, for Israel, is for their salvation. Paul prayed. Paul prayed that the Lord would give him souls out of his brothers and sisters' In Israel, Colossians 4, verse 2, Paul says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open, uh, open to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have been imprisoned. Prayer and sowing gospel seed go hand in hand, because the one who gives the, po- gives the power gets the glory. That's why prayer matters. The one who gives the power gets the glory. Prayer makes it clear to us that every one of us is helpless to save a sinner apart from the grace of God. The work of rescuing lost souls is God's work and therefore God receives all the glory. Spurgeon said of the relationship between evangelistic prayer and God's glory, he said, here is a compact a covenant that God enters into with you who pray to him and whom he helps. God says, you have a deliverance, you shall have a deliverance, but I shall have the glory. Here is a delightful partnership. We obtain that which we so greatly need, and God receives all the glory which is due his name. The one who gives the power gets the glory. And so we pray as we sow the seed of the gospel. Well, That brings us to the maybe the next logical question. How should we pray? How should we pray as we undertake this task of sowing gospel seed? Let me give you some even more granular, practical exhortations from, from the word of God. First, uh, as we think about praying for the lost, uh, and, and this whole task of sowing gospel seed, pray for peace, pray for peace, for peace. Uh, 1 Timothy 2, uh, in these opening verses of chapter 2, we're commanded to pray for leaders who are over us. Uh, we, we pray for their salvation, for sure. We want them to know Christ, as many of them do not. But we also pray that they would they as leaders would promote a stable and peaceful society in which we can live our lives as believers, not just in a comfortable way. It's not just that we want to live an easy life. But the ease with which we're to, or the the way we're to pray for peace, is so that we can be maximally fruitful. I mean, that's the heart of that, that the that prayer there, that we would be able to live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and dignity. Why? Because that is the that could be the environment in which the gospel is most fruitful. So pray. Pray for peace. Secondly, pray that the word of the Lord would spread rapidly. I mean, these are just biblical commands, just kind of put to exhortation for us. Pray that the word of the Lord would spread rapidly. Paul says that was his prayer. He says, Pray for us that the word of the Lord would spread rapidly and be glorified. And so, as we sow the seed of the gospel, we need to pray that God would open hearts. We need to pray that God would draw hearts to believe the message, that he would widen the circle of praise to the glory of his grace. So pray for the word to spread rapidly. Third, pray for clarity and conviction as you speak. Pray for clarity and conviction. Colossians 4 and verse 4, Paul prays that God will open up a door for the word, right? That's his, he's asked them to do that. And, and then he asked them to pray that when God opens that door, those doors, that when those doors open, he may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. So for us as believers, we can pray and should pray that we, God would give us clarity and conviction when we share the gospel to make the truth as transparent as we possibly can, but also as complete as we possibly can. Thirdly, or fourthly, excuse me, pray for more workers. Pray for more workers. Jesus said in Luke 10, verse 2, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, plead, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is a direct command from our Lord to pray for more laborers. The Lord himself confirms for us that he has his people out there. They're out there. They are out there. The problem is not finding unbelievers to preach the gospel to. We don't need to to figure out where the field is. The problem is finding faithful laborers to sow gospel seed and bring in a harvest of souls for Christ. That's what we need. We need more workers. So if we're going to run to win... Sowing gospel seed, I think the foundational thing, the, the very first thing we must do is to pray. And I'm going to ask you to turn the heat up because it is mighty cold in here. And I'm wearing it. I don't usually get cold in here, but I am. My hands are starting to turn numb. So if the heat's not on, can we crank that up a little bit? Thank you. All the women are like, finally. he Finally. I have, a, I have a high threshold for cold, but this... Uh, my hands are really... Yeah. I need to wear a blanket. I can't wear a blanket here. <laughs> Secondly, while prayer is critical to faithfully proclaiming the gospel, praying in and of itself isn't enough. It's not enough. Running to win, sowing gospel seed also requires that we go. That we go. We need to go out into the world of lost and dying sinners. Jesus, in his great commission, of course, makes uh, commissions us to make disciples, and he says, go therefore and make disciples. But the go is actually modifying the main verb, which is to make disciples. So more literally, it's make disciples as you go or going. So Throughout the book of Acts, again, Luke records, and we've seen this over the last few weeks that we've been reading through Acts, this pattern of the church dispersing and gospel proclamation then taking place. Uh, Acts chapter 8, the beginning of chapter 8, it says, On that day, after Stephen was martyred, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen and made a loud lamentation over him but Saul who we know to be the apostle Paul began ravaging the church entering the house entering house after house and dragging off men and women and he would put them in prison therefore those who had been scattered what do they do they went about preaching the word or later on in chapter 11 it says so then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. And we could cite other examples as you read through the book of Acts. We just looked at one in our scripture reading this morning. Whether it's Peter, whether it's Paul, whether it's Philip, whether it's Barnabas, we see this pattern of the church dispersing and gospel proclamation taking place as they go. As believers, we move about and live our lives for Christ. And whether we're under persecution or not, it doesn't really matter. We are to proclaim the gospel Again I think this just highlights something we said in a previous message I think it was in the first message on sowing God, I mean uh, holding God high that when it comes to sowing gospel seed that the church gathers for worship the church gathers for edification on the Lord's day but they disperse to evangelize and to share the gospel The church gathers to hold God high through his word. When we come together on the Lord's Day, we come together to build up the body in love. Those are the things that we've highlighted. But at the same time, we do recognize that we always have unbelievers in our midst. Always. Some because they know they're not believers, and some because they're deceived, and some because because God has just brought them through the door. And we thank God for that. That's not a bad thing. But the purpose of our corporate gathering is not to center upon accommodating unbelievers. The purpose of our gathering is to edify the believer and to build up and exalt Christ. The work of sowing gospel seed then primarily, not exclusively, but primarily happens as we go out, as we go out into the world and live our lives it is uh, it's a false notion that the work of evangelism is only the work of the church leaders. It's not exclusively our work. It is our work, but it's not exclusively our work. Nor is it the work of the church to host special evangelistic services to lead others to Christ, though we may do that. That's certainly not a bad thing to do. The work of evangelism is the task and the responsibility of all believers, of all believers in Christ's church. So we must learn to live our lives, as Paul says, as ambassadors for Christ. We live our lives as ambassadors for Christ. Right? God is making his appeal to the world through us. Now Paul, only he references that in 2 Corinthians 5, is talking about his apostolic ministry specifically and the other apostles. But there's a, there's a sense in which that extends to us also. We are God's mouthpiece, mouthpieces in the world around us. And what are ambassadors? Well, they're representatives of one nation that go out into other nations and then speak on behalf of the one who sent them. Right? And an ambassador speaks for another. And while we don't have to go to another country to sow gospel seed, we still live as aliens and strangers in this present world. Like this world is not our home. So we are, in a sense, already having gone. <laughs> we, are, we are in this foreign world, and we need to learn then to live as ambassadors for Jesus Christ, understanding that everywhere that you and I go, everywhere we turn, we are representing Christ, and as we have opportunity proclaiming that message of freedom and forgiveness that comes only through him. And so we have this task of going. Now, some are called to go like our missionary partners, and they feel burdened, and, equ- and they're equipped to go from this place to that place, and to pray, you know, to preach Christ, to plant churches and build up the, the body of Christ in that place. But we don't necessarily have to leave the country or, or you know, like the Mormons do where they send them out on a missionary. Every, every faithful Mormon has to go on some kind of mission for several years. No, we, we live as aliens and strangers, and so we go about our lives as ambassadors for Christ. So running to win, sowing gospel seed requires that we pray, that we go, and thirdly, that we speak, that we speak. We pray to deploy God's power according to his will. We go out into the unbelieving world around us and live our lives as Christ's representatives on earth. And lastly, we speak the authoritative message of what God has done to save sinners, warning them the world of their lost condition and directing them to re- repent and believe on Christ. Sowing gospel seed is, at the end of the day, about faithfully communicating the message of the gospel because the message is powerful. The message is, is effective. Paul says in, uh, in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel Why? Because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Paul says the message is powerful. It is a powerful message. We can speak the message of the gospel, you and I can, with complete confidence that God will use it to draw people to himself in the miracle that is saving faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It doesn't come any other way. There's a lot of confusion today about what it means to evangelize. Sowing gospel seed is not, it's not just sharing how much Jesus means to you. It's not social action, nor is it political involvement, nor is it arguing for the truthfulness of the Bible. That's apologetics. That's a precursor to evangelism. It's not just living a righteous life in front of other people day after day after day after day. Though we should do that. It's not a bad thing to do. That's not evangelism. And this is even more comforting. Evangelism is not about converting other people. One author says evangelism must not be confused with the fruits of evangelism. If you combine this misunderstanding, thinking evangelism is the fruit of evangelism, then it is very possible to end up thinking not only that evangelism is seeing, uh, simply seeing others converted, but thinking also that it is within your power to do so. This kind of thinking may lead to be very manipulative. End quote. Salvation, conversion, is God's work. Our responsibility is to accurately deliver the message. That's our job as believers. It's about faithfully communicating the divinely powerful message of the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that he rose from the grave, and that he calls all men everywhere to believe on his name. That's the message. That's the message. So then, how do we speak the message faithfully? How can we we make sure that we are on task when it comes to our mandate to make disciples by sowing gospel seed? A couple of practical things, a few practical things here. First, use the word of God. Use the word of God when you evangelize with people. Ephesians 6 tells us that the Word of God is what? The sword of the Spirit? It's the sword. The Spirit takes the Word and it will accomplish that which God sends it forth into the world to do. So when you share the gospel, use the Scriptures. Use the Word of God. It's easy to get distracted trying to argue philosophically why Jesus is God and why this must be true and that must be true and they're actually a sin. But but it would be far easier if we could simply point people to what the Word of God says because that is where the Spirit is at work. It is in and through His Word. So use the Scriptures if you have opportunity. That's why memorizing Scripture is important. If you know Scripture, if you don't have a copy readily accessible, you can actually quote the scripture and it has the same effect because they're hearing the word. The word of God is essential to preaching the gospel. Secondly, um, be clear. Be clear. Faithful evangelism does not depend on the results that we get. So there is no need to obscure or gloss over hard things. Don't run away from them. Hiding the reality of man's sinful condition or failing to explain the consequences of unbelief or equivocating on the exclusivity of Christ that doesn't buy you any advantage because it doesn't depend on us. So I would say be clear, as, be as clear and straightforward as you can possibly be. Bible says you all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. That's you. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, a conscious torment and a place called hell. Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through him. Just make it clear. Make it clear. And it doesn't mean it's going to make it any more um, palatable, but we need to make the gospel clear. Thirdly, alongside being clear, we should be bold. We should be bold. We can speak confidently because we know that the message is true, right? And we know it's transformative, and we know that God is drawing people to himself. So be Bold. Be courageous with the gospel. We don't have to worry. We don't have to be timid. We can be confident. Now, fourthly, alongside that, maybe a caveat or a qualifier be gracious. Be gracious. We can be both. We can be bold and courageous, and we can also be gracious. Because confident doesn't necessarily mean cocky, right? Because the reality is there, but by the grace of God, go I. We, we, have, to be, we have to recognize that, that we are not the reason for our own salvation. We weren't smarter than other people. We weren't, um, we weren't more reasonable than other people. No, we are by God's grace in Christ. And therefore, we should walk with a sense of humility and a recognition that God through much patience and much forbearance, brought us into the kingdom of God, and so we need to do the same with others. God is opposed to the proud, but the Scripture says he measures out grace upon grace to those who are humble. It's, it's not about, I think it's important, when, when it comes to evangelism, it's not about winning an argument, nor is it about convincing someone that you're right and they're wrong. If they are not interested, if they are combative, it's okay to bow out graciously and live to fight another day. It's, right? it's okay to bow out grac- graciously and live to fight another day. Don't burn. This is a problem with a lot of young, zealous believers. Once they come to Christ and they're, they're, everything like makes sense all of a sudden, and it, it's just black and white, They burn every bridge on the way out of town (laughs) because they are, you know, they tell their family about Christ, they tell their friends about Christ, they tell their coworkers about Christ, and it's just obvious. And if you could just see it the way I see it, you'd get it. And 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 so they're they're confrontational, they are uh, and uncharitable in the way that they present those things, and they come across as uh, difficult. So we need to be careful there. So we need to be, we need to use the word of God and that's a great way to kind of keep things at arm's length. It's not our thing, this is God's thing. We need to be clear, we need to be bold and courageous and at the same time, as much as God will enable us to be gracious. Running to win, sowing gospel seed means that we speak. We speak the divinely powerful message of the gospel. Now, as we wrap up, I want to look at Matthew 13. I want to look at that parable that we alluded to earlier. Matthew chapter 13, in verse, beginning in verse 2, Jesus speaks to the crowds, large crowds, verse 2, and he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach, Matthew 13. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell in the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depths of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came and choked them out. And others fell on good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundred, some sixty, some 30 fold. He who has ears to hear, Jesus said, let him hear. So Jesus is speaking to a large group, and he speaks in parables. He did this as a judgment to those who were scoffing and unbelieving. He spoke in parables also as a confirmation and blessing to the believing, because they would understand them. So he could say the same thing to the same people, two different results. What is a parable in scripture? Well, it's really a long analogy in the form of a story that's meant to illustrate a singular spiritual truth. That's all a parable is. And Jesus here tells the crowd a parable about a farmer who went out into the field to sow seed. That was something everybody could resonate with. And he went about uh, sowing the seed, and the seed fell on four different kinds of soil. It fell on a road, it fell in rocky places, it fell thirdly among thorns, and fourthly, some of the seed fell among good soil. Seems like a simple enough story. The point is, what is the point of Jesus um, of Jesus, a parable here? Well, he actually gives us the meaning if you just keep reading in the chapter. He explains the meaning privately to his disciples because they didn't quite get it. He says, here then, verse 18, the, the, Matthew 13, the parable of the soil uh, of the sower, excuse me, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown in the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, and yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary, and when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately falls away. And the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, This is the man, Jesus says, who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom the seed was sown on good soil, this is the man who hears the word, understands it, who indeed bears fruit, and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Jesus here highlights what takes place as each one of us goes out and sows gospel seed. Some people don't understand it at all. They are spiritually blinded. We've all experienced that. You talk to someone about the gospel and they look at you like you have five heads. It just doesn't make any sense to them. Some hear the gospel and there's initially there's interest. There's interest, but then as soon as they actually have to make some changes in their life, some recognition that they are sinners, that they need to turn away from things that dishonor the Lord. They're not interested in doing that, and the truth withers away. Some hear the word, and as he says here, the cares of the world choke out true faith. They're just things that are more important, family, work, career, um, you know, relationships, whatever it is. It's just more important than the word of God and Christ. And so they uh, they grow for a season but eventually the things of the world choke them out. And lastly, as we see some hear the word, they understand it, they are saved and then they what bear fruit. There are no fruitless Christians. Do you understand? There are no fruitless Christians. The fact of the matter is that as we run to win, sowing gospel seed, we need to understand that much of the seed we sow does not yield immediate return. Right, Three of the four soils were fruitless. But that should not discourage us because the seed that lands on the good soil, the soil prepared by God to receive that seed, will be what? Exponentially fruitful. hundredfold, sixtyfold, 60-fold, 30-fold. That is massive returns. I would love to get a 100-fold return on my IRA, <laughs> right? right? Or a 60-fold return on my IRA by the time I, I stop working. And so the goal for us as believers is to sow. Sow the seed. Sow the seed as you go. Several years ago, we had, um, we were living over in Reston, renting a town home, and there's a little porch in the back and we had a container garden and uh, we decided we were going to grow some plants to, uh, some things that we could eat. So we spent mm, about four months growing, um, this little Chinese eggplant plant, uh, in a pot and, uh. There were several near death experiences, you know, where the with the sun. You know, once once the thing got root bound and it needed water like every 4 hours because it needed you probably need to be in a bigger pot or something like that. But I remember I went away for one night. I went away one night for something and came back and the thing was completely wilted. <laughs> and uh, it had been so hot. All that to say, we managed by the end of the season a harvest of 5 little <laughs> eggplants. You know, the little, they're like longer, the Chinese ones are a little longer and skinnier. And so we, we harvested them, we photographed them, <laughs> we chopped them up, and we used them, and, uh, and we made one measly side dish to go with our, with our meal. And I realized after that, all that work that we probably should have just done like eight or ten containers, (laughs) and then we could have eaten them for a long stretch, you know? And the reality is that um, you sow bountifully, you reap bountifully, right? The more seed I would have sown in that container garden, the more containers I'd put seed in, the more fruit I would have had out of that. Even if some of the plants died and some of the plants didn't bear fruit like we wanted, we would have had a lot more. And it's the same with evangelism. It's the same. So bountifully, reap bountifully. So sparingly, reap sparingly. And so as a church, we need to pray for the lost around us. We need to go out into the community in this, in this area and live our lives as ambassadors for Christ. And then we need to spread the gospel message every opportunity that we get. Being clear, being, using the word of God being bold and being gracious and entrusting the results and the fruit of that into the Lord's hands. If we can do that, this church will grow. Souls will come to Christ. Souls will be saved and added to the church and they will be fruitful. Some 100, some 60, some 30, but there'll be fruit that remains. And that's what we want. And that's our commitment. And so let's, let's re dedicate ourselves to that purpose as a church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus' simple analogy here. There is such a a powerful example in his own life and ministry, Paul's life and ministry. Everywhere the disciples were going, what were they doing? They were preaching the word, speaking of Christ, lifting his name high. Um, They were living Yes, a sanctified life, but it, that sanctified life was also matched with a, a courageous belief and um, trust that your word is powerful. Lord, we get so excited about so many other things in this world. We'll talk to people about sports, the weather, uh, we'll talk about family. We'll talk about a million things. I wish, Lord, we were as excited about the gospel as we are about those things, that we, they would just flow out of us, that the word would spread. And Lord, we know your people are out there. We pray that you give us more laborers for the harvest. For the harvest is plentiful. We see it. We see it in our own families. We see it in our own workplaces. We see it in in our neighborhoods. Everywhere we go, our schools, there are so many without Christ. Would you lay a burden on us to make Christ known? And Lord, may you draw hearts to yourself. Even this morning, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.